If you have your Bibles, turn to the book of Ecclesiastes. We'll be in Ecclesiastes chapter 7 this morning. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one on the pew back in front of you. And again, like I say regularly, if you don't have a Bible, we're happy to give you uh, that one. So if you, if you need a Bible, um, take that one and you will not be guilty of theft. It's our gift to you. Um, so Ecclesiastes chapter 7. And as we turn, this is our eighth sermon in our study of Ecclesiastes, but as we turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 7 this morning, there's a bit of a shift, because in this section, we're going to look at verses 1 through 12, but in, in these verses, the preacher, he begins teaching through a host of proverbs or, or pithy sayings, and just lists them in verses 1 through 12. And these sayings, this passage, it's really similar, it has a, has a proverbial feel to it, so it's similar like you're reading in the book of Proverbs, which, which is another book that's categorized as a, a, a book of wisdom. And so these Proverbs, as we read through them in just a moment, they, they're going to appear at first glance to be maybe just randomly grouped together, like let, let's pick our best proverb and, and just put it all together in 12 verses, but that's actually not the case. Instead, these verses make a powerful contribution to the overall teaching of Ecclesiastes. And what we're going to see this morning is that there are two main points that, that this group of Proverbs makes. And these points have to do with the benefit or the value of death, first of all, and then the benefit or the value of wisdom. And so death and wisdom are going to be the two points or emphases of these verses. And the theme well, I've why I have titled this sermon Proverbs for the Road is that this road that we're traveling on in this life, this life under the sun, this road is leading somewhere. And every single one of you are on the same road as me, and it's leading to the same place, a final destination, which is the grave, death itself. And so death is going to take center stage in these 12 verses. And the preacher wants us to think about what lies ahead. He wants us to think about our death, the end of the road. And in thinking about our death and the end of the road, we are supposed to live differently now. And so we're supposed to learn from death and be guided by wisdom. And so on this road, in these Proverbs for the road, we're going to be taught by death and guided by wisdom. And so you'll see that laid out in our outline in just a moment. But first, let's read these, these verses. So Ecclesiastes chapter 7, I'm going to begin reading in verse 1, and I'm going to read through verse 12. So Ecclesiastes chapter 7, beginning in verse 1. A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. 
Say not, why were the former days better than these days? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance and an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Let's pray together. Lord, as we work through these verses, as we study your word, I pray that you would grant us, teach us to number our days in order that so that we may have a heart of wisdom. And so would you work in our hearts this morning as a result of, of these verses. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So our outline, as, as I mentioned, there's just two sections. So verses 1 through 6 is going to be section 1, and then verses 7 through 12 will be section 2. So in the first six verses, where we're going to spend the most of our time, we're going to see death, our teacher. So we're going to see how death is to teach us. And then finally, secondly, in verses 7 through 12, we'll see how wisdom is a good guide for us. Okay, so taught by death, guided by wisdom. Let's begin there in verses 1 through 6, death, our teacher. And so as you turn these first verses, this first section, we have a bit of work to do in order to understand the point that the preacher's making. Okay, so, so I get that. It, it, it's going to take a little bit of work. But the point, once we see it, is clear. It's a, it's a clear and powerful point. So for, first look there at verses 1 and 2. A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death is better than the day of birth. It's better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay heart to it. And so in these, these first two verses, there's, there's three comparisons that he lays out. So there's the better than. These are comparisons. So a good name, better than precious ointment. Day of death, better than day of birth. House of mourning, better than house of feasting. So that, that's the logic here. These are three comparisons, and this whole side is better than. That's the point he's making. And they're all found, and they're all connected here in these first two verses. So, so the first comparison, I think we'd all agree that a good name is better than precious ointment. So the first one we kind of get, right? a better name or a reputation is better than perfume. We hear that, we think, right. One commentator writes, there's no point smelling like a bed of roses if every time your name is mentioned at the dinner party, people feel the emotional equivalent of nails screeching down a blackboard. Right? So you get that. You can smell as good as you want, but if you have a bad name or a bad reputation and people don't think well of you, your, your, your ointment isn't going to help. So a good name is better. It's better to have a, a good reputation than to smell really bad. Right? So kids, hear that. Have a good reputation. It doesn't matter if you don't take showers, as long as your reputation is good. Right? <laughs> Emphasize it's better than. The good name is better. It's taken time to establish a good name. It's firm, whereas the, the precious ointment is temporary. It's fleeting. It can be, be easily altered or ruined, and it must be reapplied frequently. That, that, that's the logic, I think, the lines of thinking that he's going. So the point in this first comparison, while a good name stands as a testimony, it's firm, a lot of perfume doesn't actually stand at all. Okay, so that's the first comparison. I think that sets the table for the, the following two. So move to the second comparison, just like a good name is better than precious women, so the day of death is better than the day of birth. Now, at first glance, as, as we see that, we may ask, well, how in the world can he say that the day of death is better than the day of birth? Now, personally, I get that. I, I'm an expecting father. Right? It, could, it could be this week. right? And so the birth of our fourth child 
is, is a day that we are anticipating. And when it comes, we'll be greeted with excitement and joy and relief. Okay, so it's good. It's exciting. The day of birth is something that is joyous. And so the preacher isn't saying that it isn't a happy and joy-filled day. That's not what he's saying. But what he's saying is that the day of death is better than even this joy-filled day. And so just as good reputation is better, so the day of death is better. And so why? Well, think about the, the first comparison. Remember what we said about the first one. One, day, one is better because it stands firm. It can't be altered. It can't be ruined. And the day of death is better because it stands firm at the end of a life lived. The day of death is the end of the story. So when the day of death comes, your life is, is over. It's been established. There's nothing left to be done. It's, it's fixed. Whereas, if you think about the day of birth, though filled with joy and laughter and celebration, it's a day that is only really marked by potential. And there's excitement, but it's all related to, to what may come, the potential of that life. There's nothing really firm or established. What really can you say about a newborn? Maybe, I mean, he's handsome, she's beautiful, or, or other, wow, that head is funnily shaped, right? It's just, just surface-level observations. You can't say, well, look at the character of that newborn. Wow, what a, what a patient child. It, nothing has been established. But fast forward to the day of death of that newborn, and what can be said then? A lot more can be said. And so the preacher is saying the day of death is better than the day of birth, not because death is better than life, but because the casket is a better teacher than a cradle. Death has a way of teaching us, informing us as we travel this road. Death teaches us as we live life under the sun. I mean, think about your personal experiences with death, whether a spouse or a loved one, a friend, a coworker. When, when the day of death comes for those around us, close to us, Everything seems to come into focus. It's a sobering experience. In the face of death, we recognize what really matters. It's like, wait a minute. What, what am I doing with my life? Think about high school, where, where, where a, a friend, a high school student, is tragically killed in an accident. The whole, the whole class says, well, what are we doing? Things that we were once concerned with in the face of death seem so insignificant, even silly. And what really matters comes into focus. Things like our family relationships, our relationship with the Lord, the ways we served others, our generosity. Those are the things when, when death is near that hold weight. And the preacher wants you and wants me to recognize that and live for those things that matter now while we're still living. And the reason or the motivation to live for it now is the day of death because it's, it's approaching. And so by saying the day of death is better than the day of birth, he wants the future to force us to live differently in the present. He wants death to teach us and to inform our living now. And while it may not be the most positive and encouraging topic, considering the day of death is actually good for us. It's good for you. It's good for me. It's good for us because one day your death will come. You will be in a casket or an urn. I will one day be in a casket or an urn. Our lives will be over. Our earthly existence will be done. And at that point, there'll be no going back and fixing anything, no rearranging our priorities, no reallocating time wasted. Our lives will be over. And all that will remain is how we are remembered. And that's sobering. Just realize that. In a hundred years, this room will be filled, if it's still here, with totally different people. 
totally different people. Not one of us, probably, maybe one, probably not one of us will still be here. And so before that day comes, today in the present, now is the time to consider our lives. How will your life be remembered? What will your obituary reveal about you? What will your family say? Your grandkids, your kids, what will they say and remember about you? What will your legacy be? And and regardless of your age, it's not too late to consider this. No matter how late in life you think you are, you still have time to examine and and reevaluate. The wise person asks himself, when it is my turn, what will my life have been worth? What will they be saying about me? One commentator notes, going to a funeral encourages sober contemplation of our own morality, and this, in turn, teaches us how to live. And so this is how the wise person views life. To live wisely in this life is to live in light of our death, to live our lives backwards, if you will. Look there at verse 2. Here, here's the, the third better than comparison. The third comparison, it is better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting. And this comparison, again, similar to the one we just looked at, the second one, the house of mourning like the day of death, I think his point along the similar vein forces us to face reality, and it's better to learn from the reality, to go to the house of mourning, to go to the funeral, because that's real life, to enter the house of mourning and to sit there and be instructed by death in the house of mourning. Because the alternative, as he lays out here, is to dwell in the house of feasting, And to dwell, to live in the house of feasting is to escape reality. It's to pretend like death doesn't exist and to live in the house of feasting. And so in that house, the house of feasting, the people gather in order, I would say, simply to forget reality. To forget that something besides feasting exists. The longer you feast, the more you pretend that this doesn't exist. And they keep going and going. And so to escape the difficulties or the trials or the funerals, the fool gathers in the place of feasting and never leaves. And, and this, is, this way of life is a way of escapism, a form of, of ignoring or pretending like life isn't reality. Reality isn't as it really is. And to live a life that never leaves the house of feasting is to live a life that never recognizes the reality of, of how life is under the sun. It's to live a life that ignores reality. Because as we said in the house of feasting, there's never sorrow In the house of feasting, there are never any tears. In the house of feasting, there's no depth of experience. It's only always happy. And those who live in the house of feasting are those who refuse to face reality. And so the preacher's trying to wake you up, wake me up, to open our eyes to reality that the day of death and the house of mourning are the final destination of those living under the sun. And because that is the truth, because that's where we're all headed, it is right and wise for us as living now to consider the day of death and the house of mourning. And so that's why in verse 3 he says, For this, I think he's referring to death and mourning, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. So wisdom teaches the living to lay hold of the end, our death. And so in this first section, the preacher is painting these two pictures. He's illustrating these two types of people, the ones who live in light of reality And those who spend their lives avoiding reality. Those who embrace and live in light of death. And those who refuse to acknowledge that death is on its way. Those are the two types of people. The the way of the wise and the way of the foolish. And he's calling us as his listeners, as his audience, to be the first type of person. The person who receives instruction from the day of death. The person who is no stranger to the house of mourning. 
And so in verse 3, he continues distinguishing between these two types of people and says, sorrow is better than laughter. Again, I think this, this is the same two groups of people. Sorrow is better than laughter for, and he gives the ground the reason, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. Because the house of mourning is better than the house of feasting, it follows that sorrow, which is what fills the house of mourning, is better than laughter, which is what fills the house of feasting. But notice why in verse 3, for sadness of face, by sadness of face, the heart is made glad. Now, I don't think he's saying the only way to be happy is to first be sad. I don't think his point has to do with the depth. I think his point rather has to do with depth and substance. And, and what I mean is this. The people who always go to the house of feasting are those who are always laughing and joking and silly. Those people are shallow. And they don't really know, by way of experience, true gladness even. Their happiness is superficial because their only context for joy is the house of feasting, where it's easy to be happy, to pretend that life is never going to be hard. And so in the house of feasting, there's lack of depth. It's very shallow. But sorrow, the house of mourning, the day of death, facing reality, experiencing life under the sun with all its difficulties, teaches us, in fact, I could say, requires us to be people of depth, to be sober-minded, walking this road with wise eyes wide open and so what the preacher means when he says that by sadness of face the heart is made glad is simply that only someone who knows how to weep will really know what it means to laugh or to put it another way still only someone who recognizes that death is the end will really be able to live so only through experiencing life under the sun can you experience true gladness. And so this first section is, is, is telling us death is a good teacher. Death invites us to be people who realize that living a good life means preparing to die a good death. And this is the wisdom of Ecclesiastes. The preacher is charting the course of wisdom for us to walk. So look there at verses four through six. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of the fools is in the house of mirth or, or pleasure. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. And so in these, these verses, 4, 5, and 6, this closes out the section, but the preacher is making plain that the issues at hand revolve around wisdom and folly. The house of mourning is the place where the wise go, and the wise go to the house of mourning to learn. The wise don't avoid it. The fools, on the other hand, instead of going to the house of mourning, they're found in the house of mirth or the house of pleasure, the house of feasting. And so it's better for us to go to the house of mourning and hear the rebuke of the wise because the wise gather there. It's better for us to go there and hear the rebuke of the wise. It's better to hear that rebuke than to listen to the songs of fools that fills the house of pleasure and the house of feasting, which, by the way, is really all you hear in the house of feasting is, is songs of fools. There's nothing to learn from them. I mean, I'm tempted to make a, a, a joke about popular contemporary radio, but I'm not going to. I'm not well-versed enough in that. But the house of feasting is filled with foolish songs that we can't learn from. One commentator notes, think back to the songs that you've heard at parties. It's not likely that you learned anything important, and I'd say anything 
And so it's better to go and, and receive the rebuke of the wise. But it's not only the songs of the fools that come from the lips of the fools, it's also laughter. So the house of mirth is, is a house of laughter. And the laughter of fools, he says in verse 6, is like the crackling of thorns under a pot. Now, we may, we may miss that. Maybe you haven't put thorns under your, under your stove, under your, your cooking pot recently. So another way, I think, that would convey the same meaning, the same idea, is that the laughter of fools is like the branch of leaves that you put on the bonfire. And so maybe you've done that. It's fall time. We, we're, we're having bonfires in our backyards. And, and you find these leaves, and you put the leaves on it. What happens when you put leaves on a fire? It lights up big and fast, and it's loud, and, and it sizzles. It's bright. It makes a lot of noise. And it can even almost convince you that the fire's going to last. Oh, my job's done. Look how big that fire is. But it isn't long before that fire from that, that branch, those leaves, is gone without a trace. So just as quickly as, it's, as, as it lights up, it then is distinguished. And he's saying that's what the laughter of fools is like. It's deceptive. It makes a lot of noise. It appears to be something substantial, but at the end, it's revealed to be deceptive. It's nothing. It's folly, he says. I want to quickly move to the second section, verses 7 through 12. We'll come back to this idea of being taught by death as we close, but, but let's, let's move to, to section 2, verses 7 through 12. Because the preacher turns to a discussion of wisdom. And so there, verse 7 through 12, look at verse 7. Surely, the preacher says, oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. Now, at first, now, this verse 7 in the middle of, of these verses seems like it's, it's lost its context. As he transitions to, to this discussion of wisdom, it's like, well, wh where does that verse come from? How does that fit? But the reason I think he starts with verse 7 as he transitions to wisdom is that he wants us to recognize that a good, though a good guide, even wisdom is limited. Even wisdom can be derailed. And so it's as if he wants us to know that, that staying on the path of wisdom requires watchfulness because even the wise can be driven into madness by oppression. And even the wise can have their hearts corrupted by a bribe. So even, even on the path of wisdom, if, if not in, attentive and diligent, you can be led off the path of wisdom. So even wisdom in its application is limited. It's almost like he's saying the way of wisdom is not like the old Le Mans raceway at Bush Gardens. A lot of you younger people won't even know what I'm talking about. But there used to be these antique race cars at Bush Gardens. And, and you got to drive them on the course. Race cars around this, this road course. I mean, it was the highlight of my Bush Gardens trip. Every time I went, we wanted to go wait in line. And it was a highlight because even I could drive the car. Even I could just push the pedal and I could drive the car. And it didn't matter where I steered the wheel, I stayed on the track. Because in the middle of the road was a guide. Right? The wheels could not go off the track, so anyone could drive it. You're going to stay on that track no matter what. And the, the preacher is saying, walking the path of wisdom is not like that. You can go off the road. So be attentive. Be watchful. And so he's, he's, he's urging us. He's urging us to be guided by wisdom. But wisdom is not a fail-proof guide. So the preacher tells us, verse 7, that even the wise can be driven off the path of wisdom, which happens, which he mentions here specifically, by oppression and greed, which, which he's covered 
in prior chapters. He wants us to know that power, power and money are powerful agents often used to derail even the wise. You think of Solomon himself. And so after the brief warning in verse 7, the preacher in verses 8 through 12 wants us to recognize the, the marks of wisdom or the characteristics of wisdom. And the one specific aspect of wisdom that he focuses on, that he hones in on here in these verses, is, is the long-term view of wisdom. He's going to say that wisdom has a long-term view. It's patient. A life of wisdom is a life lived with a long-term view in mind, with a long view in mind. So, so look at verses 8 and 9. Better, so again, he's the, the, the better than comparison, but better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Verse 9, be not quick in your spirit to become angry. That's better. For anger lodges in the hearts of fools. And so similar to the point he made all the way back in verse 1, the end of a thing is better. It's because when the end of a thing comes, then we know how it ends. It's better because it's a better teacher. It can tell us what has happened. It's, it's better than the beginning. And so patience, the preacher says, is, is what enables the wise man or the wise woman to wait for the end of a thing. Wisdom governs us to wait, to be patient for the end of a thing. The proud person always wants things to go his way, in his time. The impatient man angers quickly when something happens or something goes away other than what he wants. Right? That's impatience, that's anger, that's pride. He says that's the way of the fool. Impatience that leads to anger and pride is a mark of foolishness. And this, impatience that leads to anger and pride, is contrary to wisdom, which is marked by patience and humility. One commentator says, a wise person will not react immediately to circumstances, but will take a longer-term view, waiting to see the full measure of a matter before deciding how to respond. The preacher is advocating a patient attitude toward life. As I, as I read this, I thought this is especially true among us prone-to-folly millennials. Right? So I'll categorize myself as one of the millennials who are prone to foolishness. And I thought that because social media is a great illustrating point. I mean, I, I would say you'd be hard-pressed to find a better definition of much of social media in its world, and its culture, than the negative aspects of verses 8 and 9. Right? So it's a world of many who are quick to speak, very impatient, proud, arrogant. It's a world, the social media world, mostly filled with angry-hearted fools. I mean, it is. If, if, if you're in that context, you know. Maybe you're even part of that context. And to the Twitter or Facebook crazed millennial, the preacher says, just settle down. Take a deep breath. Don't get all bent out of shape. Be patient. Don't be so angry. Relax. That's, that's what he says. The way of wisdom is the long view. It's going to pass over. Give it time. Don't overreact. But it's not just the millennial who needs to heed the words of the preacher. Look there at verse 10. So verse 10 says, Say not, quote, Why were the former days better than these? For it's not from wisdom that you ask that. So, so how many of you, right, that were just looking at, down your nose at the millennials, all those millennials, right, you should hear verse 10. How many of you have ever said, Things sure were different, better when I was growing up. Those were the good old days. Those millennials are so much worse than I was. Right? He says to you, don't ask that. 
Don't say, well, why were those days better than these days? Because it's not from a heart of wisdom that you ask that, the preacher says. Now notice, the issue is not simply saying those things or making those observations. Observations, which we should note, may be true to a certain extent. It may be true. Just, just evaluating the evidence, say, well, in, in this way, it is better now than, that, than those days, or those days are better in some ways than these. So, so observations, that's not the issue. The issue, notice, in verse 10, is asking why those days are better than these days. The issue is an infatuation with asking the why it was better back then. The issue is becoming consumed with the idea that the former days were better than the present days. This question, the preacher says, is not from a heart of wisdom. And it isn't from a heart of wisdom precisely because a preoccupation with the glory of the good old days refuses to recognize the glory of these days. You see, so if I'm consumed with those days and why they're better and getting back to those days misses the point that God's present in the present. These are good days because God is in these days as much as he was in those days, despite what you think about the government. When you start asking why was it better, what you're doing is denying the reality of God's presence now. And so a life preoccupied with the superiority of of the past is a life that's lived only looking back, longing for and hoping for and dreaming for better days like were back then. Better days, which more times than not, we should recognize we didn't actually experience. We've actually just heard about the good old days, which is even, that's, that's folly. Reports are exaggerated, right? And so the preacher says a life of wisdom isn't overly converted, concerned with the days gone by or the past. A life of wisdom should not produce grumpy old men and women. Instead, a life of wisdom experiences life now and looks ahead waiting patiently for things to reach their end. A life of wisdom says it doesn't really matter how or why things were the way they once were because this is how it is now. And at the end of the day, behind our now is a sovereign God governing our world and our lives providentially. And that fact alone is enough to keep us satisfied and content now regardless of what happens around us. I think we'd do well to consider brothers and sisters in in North Korea or China and ask them what satisfaction and contentment looks like. God is sovereign over our now. And so so, so one commentator writing from centuries ago says regarding this, this rebuke of verse 10, he says, the rebuke is evidently directed against that dissatisfied spirit which puts aside our present blessings exaggerates our evils and reflects upon the government of God as full of inequalities and upon his providence in having cast us in such evil times. So this section closes as he transitions verses 11 and 12 with a reminder of the value of wisdom. So value, wisdom is a good guide. There's, va- there's value in it. So look there at verse 11. Wisdom is good, and it's good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. So those who are alive, wisdom is good. Verse 12, for the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. I think he's playing off the inheritance comment he just made. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. 
And so wisdom in these final two verses is compared to the financial blessings of an inheritance, the financial security and stability. And so the, the preacher says, just like an inheritance can be a blessing when passed down from generation to generation to generation, he says, wisdom's the same way. Wisdom is something to be passed down throughout the generations so that those who receive it may be able to live well under the sun, right? Remember this whole book of Ecclesiastes is we are in this cycle. And so those under, those who come after us are going to go through the same basic things that we do. So wisdom can be passed down and is, is applicable in every generation. And so he's saying it's good to be passed down. What an inheritance to pass down. There's real benefit to those who receive wisdom, whose lives are guided by it. Just like a good inheritance offers some protection or shelter to those who receive it. But in verse 12, we shouldn't be surprised by this, but at the end of verse 12, the preacher does highlight a major difference between a good inheritance of money and a good inheritance of wisdom. Let's look there at the end of, of verse 12. The advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Whereas money doesn't preserve life, does it? Money, financial blessing, doesn't preserve the life of him who obtains it. It actually, a lot of the time, as we've seen throughout Ecclesiastes so far, it actually preserves the living death of those who receive it. So so that more wealth and and, and more money actually normally will lead to, to further down in the death, in the process of death away from wisdom. And so Wisdom itself is good, preserves the life of those who receive it, whereas money, I can leave a good inheritance, and it can be wasted and lead, lead those who receive it further or in better, better, they're worse off than before they received it. And so while money is something of a shelter against the winds of misfortune that so often blow through life, it cannot match the sort of comprehensive protection provided by wisdom. And so he says, wisdom is a good guide and so as we, as we conclude, Lord willing, next week we'll, we'll finish chapter 7. But in closing, I, 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 don't, I don't know if this is going to be abrupt or not, but the application that I want to leave you with from these verses is one verse. And it's Psalm 90, verse 12. And it's what I prayed at the beginning. So you can write it down, Psalm 90, 12. In fact, write down all of Psalm 90. The whole psalm is, is a, a meditation on on these, these topics, but specifically verse 12, which Moses, so Moses is writing Psalm 90, and Moses says, he pleads, he cries out, teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. And so all of Psalm 90, up prior to this point, he's talking about we're but dust. We're not everlasting everlasting, but God is. We're like dust, and we're gonna die, and our days are 80, maybe 90, but, but we're gonna die. And so he says in verse 12, Teach us to number our days, to know who we are, that we're going to die because in numbering our days, we then get a heart of wisdom. We then, exactly what the preacher is saying, we then can live differently. And so Ecclesiastes 7, 1 through 12 in a verse is teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. And so just by way of application, I would simply say for you and for me, we ought to ask God, teach us, Instruct us that we are not God, that our days are numbered. Teach us that we will one day return to dust. Teach us, remind us that our day of death is approaching so that we may get a heart of wisdom, that we may live differently now, that we may be guided by wisdom, and so that 
we may rejoice and be glad all of our days now. Let's pray as we close.